Okay, welcome everybody. Um, I'm not sure we need this microphone, but it, the, this is being iP- um, there's a the, there's a, a recording, um, and it'll be podcast. That's the term for it. I'm James Putzel, and I'm the director of the Crisis States Research Center here at the LSE, um, and I'm very happy to be able to chair this session this afternoon, and happy to see so many of you come, even though our term our regular term time finished uh, last Friday. Uh, The Crisis States Research Center, which is a co-organizer of the activity, um, is a a center that's devoted to studying the problems of of state breakdown, state resilience, and state reconstruction after war. Um, We're funded by DFID, um, and we're carrying out research across the, 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 the global south in relationship to these questions. And the International Humanitarian Law Project is a a research program that's um, housed within our law department and um, connected as well to an international humanitarian law degree that the department is offering. The question that we're considering today, which is defining the scope of responsibilities, the Great Lakes region, is very much at the heart of of much of what we're doing um, in in the Crisis States Research Center, the Great Lakes region remains a flashpoint for conflict throughout sub-Saharan Africa, and it's a focus of our our own ongoing uh, work. We would would, um, uh, argue that the ongoing presence, for instance, of the FDLR in the eastern Congo is a source of great instability in the region, uh, something that we're we're looking into and, and grappling with, and I hope we might, we might deal with that in relationship to the, some of the debates we have during the question and answer period. Um, um, there is, in a sense, the way in which countries and states deal with problems of refugees and internally displaced people is an indicator, we would think, of the relative health and strength of a state. Um, and, again, this is something that I hope we, we, we might be able to discuss um, in the context of what UNHCR has to tell us today. Um, it's very important to be able to contrast, for instance, the management of refugees um, in, in Tanzania and the historical um, way in which refugees in, interacted with politics in Zaire, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Today, I gather that we'll be hearing about um, IDPs and refugees in Tanzania and Burundi, and I look forward to to the debates we can have about this. We're honored today to have Judy Chung Hopkins, who's the Assistant High Commissioner for Operations from uh, UNHCR, and her assistant, Brian Landon, uh, from UNHCR. Uh, They will be speaking uh, one after the other initially, to be followed then by Dr. Choloka uh, Bayani, who is our own um, 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 uh, member of the law department and legal advisor to the Secretariat of the International Conference on the Great Lakes. He'll situate the, the problems within the context of the Great Lakes Pact. And followed uh, finally by Dr. Susan Bro, who... Um, got her PhD here at the LSE, so welcome back to the LSE. We are always happy to have our graduates come back and speak with us and is now um, a reader in public international law and an expert in this field 
who will be talking about issues related to the responsibility to protect and uh, peacekeeping, um, including the, the problematic of the return of refugees to their, to their home country. Um, so without further ado, I would like um, to invite um, uh, Judy Chung Hopkins to, to, to take the floor and to tell us about uh, the problems of local settlement of refugees in Tanzania and the return, the, re, the reintegration of refugees to, to, to Burundi. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for coming to the LSE today. I guess if I sat down, you couldn't see me, but you could hear me. Um, well, good afternoon to everybody. Uh, very pleased to be here. Um, Brian and I have been um, visiting with DFIT all morning. You know, this is our, um, our usual, maybe twice a year conversations we have with DFIT, which is a very important donor for UNHCR, and not just in financial terms, but obviously in, in, in terms of guidance, in terms of new thinking in this new era, this brave new world of humanitarian reform where, where things, where the way of doing business is radically uh, changing, as you, you probably are aware, both in terms of um, the funding aspect, the pool funding, the way we operate on the ground in the field, the way we're supposed to have system-wide coherence and, and not duplicate and really bring the comparative advantages of the UN to bear upon the situation. I think um, you know, all these all this are, are very, very exciting times ahead, and, and certainly the UK and DFID is at the forefront of this reform, and I'll be talking a little bit about that later on, especially uh, your Prime Minister's uh, new initiative for early recovery, early recovery funding, um, which of course uh, links into our discussion today on the, the return of refugees from Tanzania to Burundi, the, the uh, very important um, um, peace-building process currently underway. Um, I don't have a speech, so I'm sorry if uh, I may be a bit disjointed, um, but I, I thought it would be more useful actually to, to raise a few issues and then to see what interests you uh, and, and then have a conversation, a conversation thereafter. Probably then um, that would cater more to, to what interests you than, than standing here making a speech, which is not my style anyway. Um, Okay, uh, on this whole issue of return and reintegration, um, as you're all aware, surely that UNHCR, of course, is the refugee agency. We're responsible um, for taking care of, providing assistance to, and protection of refugees all over the world. Uh, so when one thinks of UNHCR or the refugee agency, normally it conjures up images of refugees in camps and, 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 and IDPs, etc. But um, maybe what is not so known is equally important, equally important to protection and assistance to refugees is the constant pursuit of durable solutions. Why? Why? Because if, if we were not as rigorous and vigilant in pursuit of durable solutions, we would have millions and millions of uh, refugees around the world today uh, in, in need of international assistance and obviously that kind of a situation is just not sustainable. 
Now, what are the durable solutions? Um, basically, when we say durable solutions in HCR, we are talking about uh, basically three options. Uh, the, the, the most favored usually because it's the, most, um, it's the most preferred option by refugees themselves, but it's also the most realistic is, is voluntary repatriation. In other words, when uh, peace comes to the country of origin, uh, when people feel safe enough to want to return, then obviously uh, this whole question of a voluntary repatriation, return and reintegration and HCR's role it is very, very, uh, it's very important. The second durable solution is, um, is um, something that we're going to be talking about today as well. Brian will, will talk about it. But it's uh, increasingly rare these days, and that's the question of the whole issue of local integration. And what that means is when refugees have been staying in a country of asylum for, uh, for a long time, for years usually, and have proven to be good members of uh, society, of the country, and then, as in the case of uh, Tanzania, and the country may actually grant, it, um, grant them citizenship status or at least some form of naturalization, in which case then they, they locally integrate into the country and then the chapter is closed for us, happily, a happy, a happy one, and, um, and, and uh, we're, we're, you know, we're less by a few, a few hundred thousand or a few million refugees. Then the third option, which you're aware of, I'm sure, is resettlement. And usually we don't like to make a big deal out of it because it's, it's such a small percentage that actually get to be resettled. Uh, and a lot of times in a lot of situations you don't make a big deal of it because it could prove to be a, a, a factor to either pull refugees into that particular country so that they can be resettled or it acts to protract the situation even further because people remain behind hoping against hope that one day they'll be able to resettle in, in a third country and thus either refuse to budge one way or the other to go home or to move on or, to, or even to locally integrate. So, uh, but as I said, that's, that is usually less than 1% of the solution for, for all the refugees worldwide, the whole question of resettlement. So, as I said, um, we don't make too big of a deal out of it. Um, uh, Brian will be talking about local integration of the, uh, the 72 Burundian refugees in Tanzania. Uh, he and I were just, we were just out there um, a few weeks ago and actually uh, went around the country and, and saw for ourselves you know, what the refugees wanted, the ones who wanted to stay, the ones who wanted to repatriate. But I must say, though, um, that um, this gesture by the Tanzanian government it's such welcome news for us in these days when durable solutions are getting more and more elusive that uh, we just had to publicize it, had to thank them publicly, the government of Tanzania, for its generosity and, and in the hopes that, um, that other countries you know, could be persuaded uh, later on, could be persuaded also to follow suit and, and thus um, help us out in the situation of especially the protracted refugee situations. What's so bad about protracted situations is not only the suffering and hardship for the refugees uh, lingering and wasting their lives for 10, 15 years. For instance, um, what I saw in Yemen just last week of Somali refugees living 15 years in the desert you know, with uh, daily sandstorms. But, uh, but it's also the cost to the international community. A lot of times there's such a thing called donor fatigue or refugee fatigue and the funding runs out and eventually we have to keep cutting back, cutting back, causing more and more hardship to the refugees. So, uh, uh, as I said, the happy ending is always uh, for people to return home, 
or to, or to locally integrate. Our topic today is, um, is thus the uh, return and reintegration of refugees. Uh, as I said, the voluntary repatriation, one of the durable solutions. Uh, why this important is that, um, you know, and I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but over the last 12 to 15 years, there has been a historic, historic uh, numbers of people returning home. Why? Possibly after the Cold War, possibly because uh, peace of, people got sick and tired of fighting. So peace, accord, peace accords were, were, were plentiful, you know, ranging from uh, the LRA in northern Uganda to, 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 uh, to the Burundi, to Rwanda, to all, all the various peace accords. Afghanistan, of course, being one of the larger ones. And as a result, uh, HCR has recorded that about close to 15 million people have actually, uh, 15 million refugees have returned to their country of origin uh, over the last uh, 12 to 15 years. Um, of course, a, a, a large number of this 15 million is attributable to the Afghans. There have been some 4 million returns since the downfall of the Taliban. And... Um, and, and what I always like to stress is, is, is not only the numbers uh, of the return, which is significant enough when you think of 15 million, but also the symbolic importance. Why? Because when people vote with their feet, when they actually walk across borders to go back to you know, somewhat uncertain futures but in their homeland, for me that is a vote in confidence, a vote of confidence in stability, in return to normalcy, and the faith in, in, in their country of return. And thus, um, what could constitute uh, better uh, a, a peace-building uh, initiative or a peace-building result um, than that? And my, um, my appeal constantly to donors is always um, to, 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 to fund these programs, you know, because as you know, when we have the CNN factor and when people are displaced, uh, usually the funding is usually uh, less of a problem than when the cameras are turned off, especially after several years when people do return. There's um, always a shortage of funding for return and reintegration programs. And yet, in this day and age, uh, with post 9-11, with all the, the situations of fragile states in this world, fragile states that don't seem to be getting out of their, their, their current predicament, surely in this 9-11 uh, uh, day today that we, we cannot turn uh, our eyes away. We must invest in these areas. We must invest in the peaceful return of, of refugees, and we must invest in their future and give them a hope so that they will remain in their countries and rebuild their countries. So, um, so uh, as I said, there, there is uh, constantly a, a budgetary gap. Uh, you know, in the aid world, you have uh, uh, you have uh, departments of, of, of funds available um, for development activities or for humanitarian activities. Seldom something dedicated for what we call transition activities, activities between post-conflict and development. And um, and when your prime minister, when the prime minister of, uh, when Prime Minister Gordon Brown announced his um, initiative for early recovery funding, of course. That was very welcome, and we're now actually in the throes of discussing with DFID how the shape, the form of this fund, and how it be utilized. Um, uh, 
UNA, uh, what is our experience to date? And here I hope Brian will talk a little bit about it as well. But HCR's experience to date with, um, with transition activities is, of course, uh, very, um, you know, very um, uneven in the sense that um, our funding uh, is seldom uh, assured. Uh, but yet we are uh, constantly encouraged by General Assembly, by, by, the, by the international community, to do more to make these returns sustainable. But unfortunately, um, our experience has, has been, I would say, rather, um, rather, um, rather shaky at best. Um, there's also the, the difference between the cultural, the worlds of the development agencies and the humanitarian agencies, and a lot of times the interface is rather difficult. Our cultures are quite different. So this handover from, uh, from the humanitarian phase or emergency phase to a development phase is usually quite problematic, and, and thus there, there are those problems. There's also absorptive capacity problems. You know, a lot of times uh, you, you could have the money to return refugees, but then governments are weak. Local governments are usually non-existent, and thus um, projects such as housing projects or property restitution projects, which usually are one of the first things that UNHCR has to grapple with, is property restitution you know, housing and, and how do people coexist again, how to build social cohesion projects so that uh, returning refugees can coexist with the ones who never left. All these are, are, are very important activities. Of course, today, as I said, with humanitarian reform, that opens up a whole new, new window of opportunity. We have new windows of funding. We have now a, a political will to deal with this issue. And thus, um, you know, hopefully um, this this next few years will be instrumental in how we deal with these millions of people that are returning. Um, I believe my time is up. Uh, as I said, I, I just wanted to highlight a few things and hopefully um, get your questions and then have a dialogue that way so that we can focus on issues that interest you more. But um, Brian will now talk about the uh, Burundian uh, 1972 caseload and uh, their wishes whether to return or to remain in Tanzania. So thank you. I'm told I have 10 minutes to run through this really quickly with you, so I'll try to, I'll try to move fairly quickly. It's just to try to give some context to what Judy was saying and, and use the Great Lakes situation in Tanzania and Burundi to illustrate what we're where UNHCR is trying to bring about comprehensive solutions. And when we say comprehensive, we mean all three in, in play, voluntary repatriation, local integration, and resettlement. It's quite unique when these three come together. And this, this isn't a standard situation. This is a quite unique situation, but one that's very positive. Um, I don't know how much you know about the history. It's not too clear. But the first outflow of refugees from Burundi was in 1972. Uh, and they went to the Tabora region in northwestern Tanzania. Very quickly, they were moved from Tabora into settlements. Um, these aren't camps. These were areas of land given by the Tanzanian government, but very clearly delineated, and they weren't allowed to move off of these settlements, but they were quite large and allowed for farming and uh, all sorts of activities, and quickly these became uh, communities in and of themselves and self-sustaining. Um, to the extent, and I'll go into that in a minute, that by 1985, I believe, the, they were receiving, no longer receiving any international assistance and they were already paying taxes to the, the Tanzanian government. 
Now, the second big wave of, of outflow was in 1993. This, sorry, I don't have a slide on it specifically, but this shows the camps along the border in between Burundi and Tanzania, uh, where there was about 90,000, more 90 to 100,000 uh, Burundians that fled at that point as well. So this, this compounded the situation in Tanzania. Now, here, i just give you a clear overview. 218,000 arrivals in 72 in these, what they call the old settlements. These are the settlements that were established, the land that was allowed. And as I said, in 1985, they, they were self-sufficient. They're, they're remarkable farmers. They brought uh, quite a lot of production to an area that previously was fairly arid, fairly unfarmable. And then the 1993, sorry, it was 117,000, they were put into camps. So they're in camps along the border. They weren't allowed to go into these settlement areas. And in fact, refugees were recognized as refugees by the Tanzanian government on the basis that they arrived in the camps and registered in the camps. Now, since their camp situations, then they become quite dependent on humanitarian aid. They, they don't have the access to the farmland. They don't have access to the markets and these sort of things. Now, this, this slide is speaking specifically to the 1972 caseload. When we start looking at solutions for them, uh, very recently the Tanzanian government opened up uh, its, its willingness to look at local integration for this caseload because they recognize that they're de facto locally integrated already because they are so self-sufficient. So that prompted UNHCR to go out and do uh, a survey in the camps to see, okay, well, what, what do people want to do? Do they want to stay or do they want to go back to Burundi or, or what are their aspirations? So this initial survey came up with, with this number that you see at the top, this 21% of the 220,000 that had indicated that they probably would go back to Burundi uh, if, if, this was given a, if they were given the option. Now, that, that would require that we very quickly establish road links with Burundi. We start getting people registered and going back. And, in fact, the first movement took place already in, in just earlier this month when the High Commissioner went there by rail. There's an old railroad track that was rehabilitated and moved them back. But for the vast majority, 79%, and probably more, this is just an initial survey, would like to stay in, in Tanzania. Uh, and the willingness of the Tanzanian government to, to allow that is, is demonstrated by the fact that they've even reduced the fees that normal uh, people seeking naturalization in, in the country would have to pay. So it's about $50 a family. Um, and when we were there, we spoke to the Minister of Interior, I believe it was, that um, was saying that he'd like to see this procedure even accelerated faster, just even by June, July this year, to complete the registration and the naturalization process. So that would allow for closure of the settlements, um, except for this Uliankulu, which would, they would probably allow a few people to stay. But it also means that we would come in and have to rehabilitate some of the infrastructure if we could hand it over to local authorities or also come in and help people local integrate to where they're going to move about the country because it doesn't mean that they're going to stay in the settlements. They're, they're also going to move around the country. This shows more or less where indications of the, the size of the arrows are indications of the numbers of people that would like to move uh, elsewhere in the country. Uh, and it, it shows that they're going to move all over the place. But <coughs> while they're very good farmers and they've demonstrated that they can farm and 
be productive when they move into these new communities it's going to take a bit of an effort to get them reestablished again and integrated into the local communities so that's something we're going to be involved in as well now resettlement the third durable solution is also an option um, but as you see it's 4,237 applications uh, to the U.S. It's a, it's a pretty small number given the, the big, big caseload. So it's a very minor option. But the way we see resettlement is, is almost a way to leverage some of the other solutions. If, if we're seen to be flexible or states are seen to be flexible and able to move some of the more vulnerable cases or, or some of the people that we know probably won't make it on their own in Tanzania and probably can't go back to Tanzania. If there's some flexibility there to alleviate that problem for the Tanzanians, then they're more willing to look at local integration and people are also more willing maybe to go back to, to, to Burundi. Now for the 93 caseload, uh, it's a different situation. Local integration is not an option. For this group of people, it's, it's mainly about voluntary repatriation. It's a smaller group. They aren't established in Tanzania. They don't have the access, as I said, to the farmland and, and being self-sufficient. So the Tanzanians very much want to see them move back and they want to see these camps consolidated and closed. Um, their time frame is by the end of this year. We're looking to be a little bit more realistic because we know that the capacity on the Burundian side probably isn't there to absorb that many people all at once. So we're looking for some flexibility there to allow for that. But the case is clear that they want them to go back to Burundi. And again, this is a bit of a give and take situation, whereas if, if the Tanzanians are, are, are going to be flexible on the 72, then we need to be a bit cooperative on allowing, you know, facilitating the return of people that, that came later. Um, it's, it's allowing space for that. And then there are small, small numbers that may be resettled. Now, one of the biggest problems on the Burundi side is land. Um, in Africa, Burundi, I think, has the highest um, per capita, per kilometer. I don't know how you put that, but the number of people per, per kilometer of land. Yeah. Uh, on the continent. So land is a huge issue. And ownership of land is a huge issue because when people left, people assumed control of their property, their houses, whatever. People go back, expect to, to be able to take that back again. And it's, it's never that straightforward. Uh, one thing UNHCR does to facilitate the return is, is we give cash grants. In this case, it's $50. In the case of Afghanistan, for instance, it's $100. It depends on the situation. And everyone recognizes it's not a panacea. Um, the money is just a little bit of startup money, but it's, it's, it's quite a lot, given that it's $50 per person. And in a large family, that amounts to quite a bit. This um, shows a... Um, Burundi and the returnees to date and where they've gone to. The darker areas are where the most returnees have gone to. And you'll see it's in the south and upwards uh, in the middle here, but on the border with Tanzania. What that speaks to is the problem with land. These provinces that they're going to be returning to are already quite heavily populated. And so to absorb, in addition, some 90,000, 100,000 people uh, in a year it's going to be a huge challenge, a huge challenge. Uh, and we're going to have to find probably some ways to, to either resolve the land issues or to find other means to, to move people around the country or, or other means to resolve those problems. The next slide is 
the dark areas here are those that will return from the 72 caseloads. So there you see compounding, it's, it's, it's to these two southern provinces mainly. So that's on top of the 93 caseloads that will be going back and, again, highlighting the difficulties that people will have in, in reestablishing their lives. In Burundi itself, we receive people coming back. We do a lot of counseling about HIV and AIDS and, and these things. Um, we try to at least get a handle on what are the property issues that they're facing. There is a commission that's been set up by the government with UNHCR to look at claims. Uh, it's got some money from the Peace Building Fund to, to help facilitate that, um, uh, trying to absolve, resolve some of these claims, but it's not working quite yet. Um, we haven't seen it working that well yet. Uh, and then we largely focus on providing housing, building houses, providing the material to build houses, so at least people have a place to stay. A lot of people go back and live with relatives or live with friends or, or whoever, but eventually they need their own house. And then many people try to rent land or, or buy land initially so that they have a means to, to uh, start their lives again. Uh, so just to, to wrap it up, here we're looking at a situation where it is a comprehensive package of solutions, which is quite unique around the world in refugee situations. Um, I think we're, we're very lucky that the Tanzanian government is, is willing to allow for local integration and allow for local integration on this scale. It's quite unprecedented that uh, <coughs> almost 200,000 people would be allowed to locally integrate in a country. Uh, but on the other hand, when we talk about return, we've got huge challenges in Burundi, and nobody's saying that this is going to go smoothly. Nobody's saying that this is going to be a, a quick fix to a long-term problem. Uh, and it will highlight the challenges that we have in making returns sustainable. And here we need to talk, as Judy said, we need to be speaking with the development actors and how they're going to be engaged early on in the process uh, and how to allow people to, to situate themselves back in the country. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, James. And may I just say thanks to everyone who has taken their time to show up um, just when we thought that term had ended. And we're not quite sure uh, how many people would come. But I think that um, the level of attendance we have indicates the importance of the subject uh, as well as its continuing vitality, not least here <coughs> at the LSC. James, in his introductory remarks, did make reference to the crisis States Research Center. Um, and that, of course, indicates I should probably, is that better? Okay, the, <coughs> the fact that we have an exodus of refugees as well as internally displaced persons is a clear indication of the crisis of states. The International Humanitarian Law Project looks at the way in which conduct during armed conflict, at least, uh, prohibits the displacement of persons but it's also involved in looking at post-conflict reconstruction and peace-building initiatives, and the Great Lakes area is one that we have been greatly uh, involved in. I should also mention that we do have here at the LSC the Migration Studies Unit, uh, which is a co-participant, and Dr. Eko Elman uh, is there representing that particular unit. 
My role is essentially to situate what has been discussed so far in the framework of the Great Lakes and end up where the Assistant High Commissioner began, which is that this is an area where in terms of background, uh, six million persons have been killed over the past 10 years and more than 10 million persons have been displaced either as refugees or internally displaced persons. And the name Great Lakes region is not very well known. The first thing that comes to mind is the Great Lakes region of North America. Um, and I recall when I wrote the international legal materials and said I wanted to do a piece on the Great Lakes and they brought back very enthusiastically saying, oh yes, we would like something on water resources, the median line, access and distribution of rights. And I said, oh no, this is the Great Lakes in Africa about conflict and peace. <laughs> and they said, oh well, that's more interesting than water resources. Uh, but there we are. But it's an area in which uh, the approach to conflict and peace building has always been ad hoc, from peace agreements in Burundi, peace agreements in Rwanda, peace agreements in the DRC. But just before 2004, the 11 states that constitute the area decided that they should have a comprehensive approach and a comprehensive framework to both peace building as well as post-conflict reconstruction. And that framework took uh, the nature of an international conference on the Great Lakes, which has all the 11 member states uh, participating in it, and which is based on an integrated approach based on the component of peace and security, leading to democracy and good governance, leading to economic reconstruction and development, and finally, the element of human security as well as environmental security. And those components are seen as inseparable uh, and are integral components so that there's not just a focus on one, but on, on all the dynamic elements uh, that comprise issues that are important to focus on in the framework of peace and security within the Great Lakes. And within that framework in 2006, the 11 states adopted a pact on security, stability, uh, and development in the Great Lakes which was welcomed by the Security Council Resolution 1653 of 2006, so that the conference is not just a platform established by the pact, but it's also an international person recognized by the Security Council, no less. Two approaches are important with regard to this particular topic. Uh, the first of which is that the conference embodies the responsibility to protect a concept that Dr. Susan Burrow will come and explain in more detail. But I can only say that the concept was consummated not very far from the LSE in Canada House at the beginning, and Professor Greenwood and myself were the representatives from the LSE when we were looking at the project, which first of all was the concept of intervention and state sovereignty. And the more we discussed the idea of intervention, the more it became unfashionable, um, and the more it turned into a responsibility uh, to protect, <clears throat> but I shan't say more of that. I think Susan uh, will discuss that aspect. But it's important to note that the Great Lakes states themselves were alive uh, to the application of the responsibility to protect uh, populations from genocide, from crimes against humanity, and from war crimes, because these are the very um, forms that lead persons to flee their countries of origin in search of safety elsewhere, either as refugees in most cases or as IDPs uh, in other cases. The protocol non-aggression embodies the doctrine in the preamble. 
the doctrine had been debated in the process leading up to the preparation of the protocol, uh, but coming from the UN summit in 2005, where the United Nations had embraced the doctrine itself, all the member states were excited and said, yes, now we should have it, uh, not just in the preamble, but also in the substantive provisions of the protocol. So we find the doctrine then embodied in Article 48 of that protocol. And its place is an exception to the prohibition on the use of force. It's also as an exception uh, to the prohibition on aggression. So it has a specific place uh, legally because the debates always are where does it actually belong. But I think the protocol does indicate uh, one way or another that that's where it does belong. But the responsibility is linked to human security and provides a continuing aspect, i.e. from the prohibition on the use of force and non-aggression to the protection of populations. And the continuing protection of those populations extends to those who are displaced as refugees or as internally displaced persons. And to that extent, two protocols relate to these issues. There's the protocol on the protection and assistance to internally displaced persons, the main framework of which uh, is to adopt the principles on internal displacement uh, with regard to protection uh, as well as return and reintegration of IDPs. There's also a protocol on the proper rights of returning persons, uh, which attends both to IDPs as well as to refugees. Uh, and that protocol is seen as important because property is one of those impediments to return. Often the populations will ask, return to what? I have no house, I have no home. Um, and very often there are also property disputes, i.e. contested areas of, of belonging uh, within the state of origin. And that protocol attempts to provide uh, a framework uh, for property claims and therefore links issues of return reintegration to a durable solution which is anchored in protection and the protection system devised by the Great Lakes states themselves. And it's important then to link that aspect to external support, the early recovery initiative um, announced by the Assistant High Commissioner in relation to the Prime Minister's initiative is welcome. Tanzania too, the granting of nationality to several thousands of refugees from Burundi is a welcome return to Tanzania's hospitality. It still remains the only state in Africa to have done this, first in relation to refugees from Rwanda in the 1970s, uh, and now again there was a bleak period in the 1990s uh, when Tanzania actually threatened to shut its borders because, in its words, there were those states that were in the habit of offloading unwanted sections of their populations, and they didn't want that to happen. Um, but this is an important uh, turnaround. What then is the framework of the durable solutions in this regard linked to protection? Uh, first of all, there is a responsibility on the part of states uh, to provide protection for the property uh, of displaced persons, i.e. property that is vacated by them, and to ensure that it is safe from pillage, uh, the looting of property during armed conflict, um, that this property is not occupied by other persons to maintain a database uh, for the registration of property both under statutory law as well as under customary land tenure systems which very often are unregistered. The institution of, of a framework of recovery 
and restitution, which again the Assistant High Commissioner mentioned. Again, very important aspects in here. Putting in place informal as well as formal dispute settlement mechanisms uh, to enable recovery, restitution, as well as compensation uh, of property on the part of states. And this is a responsibility that the states themselves have accepted, uh, looking at the fact that it is primarily in their interest that the returning populations, because they are their populations, are stabilized, um, reintegrated, uh, and returned to normality from the point of view of their lifestyles. And I think that it's a framework which, in due course, will probably stand the test of time. Uh, it's a framework which is also being tested. Events in Kenya, um, as we fully know, uh, fully tested the resolve of the process, but also vindicate the existence of the process and why it is there. Uh, and as we speak, of course, uh, Burundi in accepting uh, returning refugees is itself returning to normality. Uh, and there are several challenges, both on the political as well as economic front. Um, but what this does is to provide at least a framework by which the states can sit around, negotiate their problems, approach them on a regional basis, anchored in specific standards of conduct. Um, and I remain open to your questions. I think I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's nice to be back. You can imagine what a thrill it was for me as a Canadian lawyer to get the chance to study at LSE with Chiloka Biani and Chris Greenwood. Um, it was my LLM year, the best year of my life, and I'm always happy to come back. And I had the great honor then to be doing my PhD during the time that the responsibility to protect was being developed as a doctrine. And um, now to see that it has been incorporated into the Great Lakes peace process by none other than Chiloka Biani. The world is a very wonderful place as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, well, I'm sort of taking you back to some theoretical propositions here. I am not a practitioner in refugee law. My skill is actually in looking at armed conflict. That's what I study. Um, and so, as Chiloka indicated to you, when the responsibility to protect was developed, it was in the context of a discussion of whether there was a right to intervene in situations of humanitarian catastrophe, man-made humanitarian catastrophe, such as the genocides in Rwanda and Srebrenica. And Kofi Annan posed a question to the world as to whether this was, in fact, a lawful intervention. And, of course, Kosovo brought this to the forefront and so the Canadian government, and actually the Dutch government was always first, and I always like to say that because as a Canadian we always take credit for this, but it was actually a Dutch report on humanitarian intervention that talked about the responsibility to protect a year before the Canadian report was released. But the Canadian report was the one that uh, the responsibility to protect, which everybody should read and memorize, um, developed the doctrine in its three component parts. And the one part that I want to emphasize today and what we're talking about is the responsibility to rebuild. There are three separate responsibilities, prevention, reaction, and rebuilding. 
Now, none of this has been incorporated into the consensus General Assembly resolution as a result of the 60th anniversary summit. But nevertheless, by implication, as the statement on the responsibility to protect was adopted, I argue in a book that I'm writing that, in fact, all three component parts of that responsibility have to be taken into account. And we've seen today in our discussion um, with respect to repatriation of refugees and internally displaced persons, that part of a responsibility to rebuild is obviously for people to return to their homes or to be resettled in where they have settled when they fled from, from persecution. Now, it is the Great Lakes Peace Process. Again, I'm sorry, but I always give my students homework. On the International Humanitarian Law website are all of the protocols and the pact, and you should have a chance to read them. You actually, as Chiloka said, have to read them as a group because they're an elegant framework for rebuilding, for reconstruction. They fit together. The overriding principle is the responsibility to protect because I view this as almost a circle. So we've had a situation where there has been massive loss of human rights, genocide, ethnic cleansing, mass murder, starvation, the, the attendant health consequences and the massive displacement of people. We've had a reaction to that by the international community, both by way of numerous peacekeeping operations in the area, many of them with robust peacemaking mandates, and we've had the Great Lakes peace process. So we've had reaction. Well, now we're in the situation of rebuilding, and in that rebuilding we have an obligation that if the rebuilding fails... We go back to the beginning. It's a circle. So therefore, if this doesn't work, we're back at square one to prevention and then perhaps to reaction. And the Great Lakes Priest process recognizes that if reconstruction fails, you're back at the crisis. You're back at the beginning. You're back at contemplating the use of armed force. Now, what I like about the, the protocols, the various protocols, is their promotion of the basic causes, their, their not promotion, their, their, they understand that unless there is good governance, sustainable development, return of property to displaced persons, the ability for people to return to their homes, justice, reconciliation, and by the way, one of the protocols that I particularly refer to is the protocol with respect to sexual violence against women and children that unless these causes of conflict are dealt with, then the conflict will reemerge. So what are the consequences of failure to rebuild? Now, I look at this in terms of customary international law and what international legal obligations arise onto the international community. Now, here's the bad news. It's certainly clear that none of these concepts as of yet are incorporated into customary international law. I think, however, that the Great Lakes Peace Process is an extremely important part of state practice. And Opinio Juris, as Chiloka said, the leaders of the Great Lakes countries came back from the summit with the understanding that they had an obligation to consider responsibility to protect. But none of this as of yet is incorporated as part of international law doctrine. We could say it's good policy, it's good practice, and we can hope that if the, the process is successful, 
then it could be incorporated as an international practice. Now, I was interested to hear comments about peace building and Burundi because one of the other things that happened from the 60th anniversary summit and one of the other recommendations of the responsibility to protect was the development of a peace building commission. And one of the first countries that the peace building commission has marked, earmarked as one of its candidate countries is actually Burundi. But the issue there again has to be, as you've said, financial contribution, the willingness to actually engage in the reconstruction in a concrete developed way. And unfortunately, the Peace Building Commission is in its infancy. In um, my chapter that I'm working on with respect to this, I indicated that part of the problem with highlighting Burundi as a country was that it was part of the whole Great Lakes process. And actually engagement with the um, regional organization was extremely important. Um, it said in the report of the Peace Building Commission, the one potential difficulty in the coordination function is that regional approaches to peace building go beyond establishing regional institutions. In fact, they should capitalize on existing institutional mechanisms to address problems that cannot be resolved at the country level. I think what's very clear from, from the Great Lakes peace process is the chances of success have to be based on a multi-country framework. And the Peace Building Commission establishing one country as the priority could, I think, potentially be problematic in the future of the responsibility to rebuild in this area. So that is one, one caveat. It's fascinating to actually hear what's going on in the ground, the work that's being done to repatriate refugees, but there is a lot more work to do. There are millions and millions of people that have been affected by the Great Lakes conflict, and we can only hope that these protocols do, um, do what they suggest they're going to do, which is a comprehensive, elegant framework for reconstruction, recovery, and reintegration. Thank you very much. Well, sel seldom do I have such a disciplined panel, so that's very good. And that, I, I mean, I think everybody was so disciplined that you're allowed to, 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 to speak uh, quite uh, at length in response to the questions. Um, so uh, we, can spend, we, we, we can spend some time in an open dialogue and, and debate here, and I'd love to start getting your interventions. Yes. Yeah, and I'll do that because it's being podcast. Right, my I should see if we can get. The picture that has been painted is one that is praising Tanzania for the good gesture it has shown, not only in hosting the Tanzanian, the Burundian refugees for such a long time, but also for allowing to allow uh, to, to have some of the Burundian refugees becoming its own citizens. Now, the issue that is not coming up is how much support internationally that Tanzania will be receiving as a result of this. So that's question number one. I mean, you, you are praising it, but how much will go in there? There's always a funding issue. Uh, the second question is, 
you've also talked quite nicely about the Burundian refugees voluntarily returning. From the interviews that we have done, which are, I should say, hundreds of interviews with returning refugees, it has not been as voluntary as it is painted, especially with the 1993 cases, because it has been forced. Many of them that we, we did speak to uh, did actually say they did not want to go. And the Tanzanian government had already issued deadlines. There was a 31st of 2006, which was not achieved. Then they decided to push them. So there's been a, a little bit of pressure on one hand although there have been some of those that have voluntarily gone back. So my question in this regard is, is Burundi ready to receive these refugees? Not only in terms of space, which is a problem, but in terms of the political atmosphere. The Burundian government has failed and continuously uh, dodges the idea of talking to the FNL. It's a stalemate. They signed an agreement in 2007. Nothing has happened up until now. Third question and last one is uh, regarding, uh, regarding the, the refugee camps. Part of the, the pressure has been that uh, these refugee camps have been used as sort of arming, uh, arming territories for, for rebellions. Especially in some of the camps, the refugee camps that I visited in Tanzania, a lot of arms were crossing and coming and then being used to destabilize the area. Now, with the closure at least of two, that, that is the target. Uh, there is one that is specifically, I mean, still, the, the last one that is not going to be closed is one actually that had a lot of arms flocking into it. So I'm still concerned, I mean, in terms of what is going to happen. Have they managed to get these arms in the process of trying to get rid of the refugees? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, we'll take a few Margaret Garling from the IRC. I have a question um, about the gender dimensions of return. Um, given the fact that um, many of the returnees are widows or women head of household who do not, under customary law, have a natural um, right, let's say, or access to the land that their deceased husbands. Uh, once works and I spoke to a group of widows in Kibondo camp last year and they um, were very concerned um, they, they didn't want to they wanted to return but they didn't know where to return to they couldn't go back to their husband's uh, land uh, because their in-laws would have taken it they couldn't go back to their original colleen because the family would have expanded and taken over that land um, so I wonder to what extent um, UNHCR is factoring in uh, these gender concerns uh, into the return process and to what extent I believe there's new legislation which will allow women to inherit and dispose of landed property. Um, I'm not entirely sure about that. Perhaps somebody can elucidate on that. And to what extent that law can be implemented in a situation where a lot of the land disputes within Burundi are creating... Um, uh, or contributing to a rise in criminality, which is quite a serious hindrance on return situations. Thank you. Thank you. Take one more question in this round, this gentleman here, and then I see one, two, three, yes. Thank you. <coughs> Jean-François Durieux, I'm with the Refugee Study Center at Oxford. Is this working? No. Yes. 
All right. Anyway, I'll shout. <coughs> I've got two uh, quick questions. Um, one starts from where Susan left it, but, but it's actually uh, to you, Judy, and, and, and Brian, because I was struck by what the, the, the final comment that was made by Susan about the need to view uh, the peace building in Burundi in a multi-country framework. And it seems to me that when it comes to refugee solutions, especially when they are somehow connected to development, uh, one tends to lose the multi-country framework because development plans are actually uh, uh, negotiated on a country basis and even the whole humanitarian reform thing posits the UN vis-a-vis -vis one particular country and loses the cross-border dimension which is always present in a refugee flow and in my view should also be present at the time of solutions. I happen to know that particular border that uh, you showed pretty well. As you know, I served there with UNHCR it strikes me that on the Tanzanian side we have a, a, an area which is largely underpopulated and of course we have on the other side Burundi which is largely overpopulated. So why can't some sort of regional area development also be part of the, the, of the solution? Not just of the peace building but also economically and socially. How can we preserve some sort of interaction across the border as part of a comprehensive package of solutions? My second question is about precisely the regional dimension now uh, of the peace process and, uh, and what uh, Chaloka uh, and Susan explained. And here, vis-a-vis -vis the responsibility to protect, my question is how do we involve non-state actors in this process? Uh, Alex De Waal has written a, a few years ago uh, an interesting article on the failure of the R2P in the Darfur context by showing that after all, one has to remember that if there is a conflict, there are parties, and peace must be made between the parties. And the R2P seems to leave aside, as it were, non-state parties, looks at the international community a bit large, and the blue helmets, and the AU, whatever, and then states, including the 11 member states. So the question is, can we then find ways to actually engage non-state actors, because most of the conflicts we're talking about are non-state, uh, the, the non-international conflict, and I don't want to assume that each non-state actor in the region has a sponsor among the 11 member states, right? So somehow they must also have their independent voice in the process. Thank you. Thank you. So there's lots of questions on the floor, so I think uh, to the gentleman's question, obviously you've been in the region and who are you working with? BBC. Oh, I'm BBC. So you know more than we do. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, your question about how much support. Um, you know, as you know, um, UNHCR, like so many other agencies, are voluntarily funded. So in other words, uh, we have to go out and appeal uh, for, for, for these projects as and when they come up. So, Obviously, we're only able to do as much as um, you know. There is uh, interest and attention being paid to the situation, and that's our, our, our role, basically. When I went up, and the high commissioner went up, is basically, especially at the level of the high commissioner, to generate interest. And you know, it is an interesting story, one must admit, but really to, to publicize it greater, and then and then hopefully the appeal that we have just launched for 35 million dollars will be will be well funded. This appeal of $35 million is a combination of everything. It is to continue the, the, the repatriation exercise, 
to pay for investments in reintegration in Burundi, as well as for investments in local integration in Tanzania. So uh, if you're interested, we can share with you that appeal that breaks down um, you know, the most important projects. Obviously, 35 is not going to do the job, but that's a start, I, I think. Um, you know, this is what we're hoping to get, <coughs> to see if we can actually be successful on that front. Um, in terms of voluntary, you say, are the returns really voluntary? Okay, of course, um, you know, when we discuss with government um, and, uh, and even actually with the, our, our rep there, our office there, um, the, there are rejected asylum seekers. Let's not forget that, uh, that actually the government and UNHCR go through a process of refugee status determination. And not everybody who shows up from a foreign country qualifies as a refugee. As you know, you have to meet certain criteria of persecution and fear for your life and, you know, etc. if you're going to be forcibly returned. But anyway, in the process, um, uh, it was found that not everybody, you know, claimed to, to, to asylum could be accepted. So a lot of the ones, I would say, I don't know if all 100%, but certainly most of the ones who were uh, sort of kicked out of the country, told to go, were actually um, were actually rejected asylum rejected asylum cases. In fact, um, our reps office intervened in the case cases of a few that were wrongly refooled, wrongly. In fact, they had refugee cards. Uh, so when we did intervene, the ones with the valid refugee cards were readmitted. But of course, you know, okay, this is the Burundi case. You know, I will not pretend that today, this day and age, where we have such a mix, what we call the mixed flows, right? As you can imagine, I was just in Yemen, I was just in Egypt, where constantly one sees the so-called mixed flows of people running away because of generalized violence, Somalia, but also to, to eke out a livelihood, to seek a better life uh, for themselves and their children. So, so there is the, complex, the complication now today of, of the whole notion of the mixed flow. Uh, of which some are in need of protection, but some are running for, for, for to, to lead a better life, and many uh, actually uh, uh, pertaining to both to both categories. Um, uh, when you say that the refugee camps were used as recruitment grounds, you know, unfortunately, that's a reality in so many places. I mean, look at Chad; it's even worse with the latest Chad uh, fiasco. Uh, we know that a lot of the camps were used as recruitment grounds. Um, um, and that's precisely why the government of Tanzania is so keen, for other reasons as well, but that's why they're so keen to close these camps. Uh, as you say, there, there'll be one last one, uh, and, um, you know, and I suppose that's the way, um, you know, I, I don't know. Short of putting an army there, that's really, you know, we have to be very frank, short of putting, uh, even when we do in the case of Chad, have the, uh, have the police and the gendarmes in the camp or around the camp, uh, there's only so much one can do to, 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 to stop this recruitment uh, or, you know, politicization of camps. And that's why, um, to be very honest, you know, camps are not usually the best uh, solution for us. We actually, like in the case of Uyangkulu, where people sort of settle in a local settlement, where it's not confined, they can move around, they can do a bit of cultivation. Uh, it's a lot healthier, both for themselves and for the peace and security of that region, for them to be in that kind of settlement than in a camp situation. 
camp situation is really the last last resort that you, you, UNHCR would have to resort to. Was there a last question? Or? Any other questions? Or do uh, well, there's an agenda one, and yes. maybe moving on to the land rights issue. But, but certainly, uh, in terms of Burundi, um, you know, the key there, obviously, oh, the key is uh, obviously for us to negotiate with the government of Burundi uh, uh, for, for land so that we can uh, have projects on that land. The projects meaning that uh, providing the materials to the returnees as well as the populations that who never left uh, <clears throat> to coexist and to live in, in these settlements that the government would have allocated uh, the land you know, to, 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 the, to the refugees and returnees, but for UNHCR to actually assist with material support. And um, I don't know the actual uh, uh, laws of that country when it comes to uh, land ownership for women. All I know is um, a, lot, a lot of the ones I interviewed on that particular site, forget what, what was the town called? Moyinga or? Moyinga, 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 one of these sites. Uh, 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 HCR actually prioritized single-headed households, women-headed households, actually prioritized so that actually a good number, maybe more than half, were actually women in, in that particular settlement. So I don't know what the laws are, but our affirmative action applies in, in, in this case. On, uh, on the questions. Firstly, questions by, by Kassin. International support uh, is vital, but I think what's necessary here is to recognize that the states themselves have set up a regional institutional framework for addressing these issues, and international support has to filter into the regional framework that has been built. And this issue came up uh, about two weeks ago when at DFID we're looking at issues of sexual and gender-based violence in, in the Great Lakes and engaging with, with the regional frameworks as, as, as the means of support. The Great Lakes system has a regional fund which they have set up. Um, and at present, there are pledges of about 12 million US dollars. It's, it's growing, but uh, the idea is that they put their own fund for reconstruction and development, which looks into all these issues. And, and international support is intended to be earmarked in that regard. Issues of voluntary return. There was, I think, a small bleak period in the 1990s. I was actually present at an international conference held by the government of Tanzania jointly with Rwanda and Burundi, where the Prime Minister of Tanzania was taking a half attitude uh, towards uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And I think two factors there were responsible. The first of which was the wave of democratization that was going through African states, including Tanzania. Um, the fact that governments were becoming accountable was evident in that the populations were voicing concern about refugees being in their areas, and MPs then worried that they would lose their seats, and they were putting pressure uh, on the government to do something about this, and the knee-jerk reaction was, well, perhaps close the border and force return. The second aspect that contributed uh, was the somewhat antagonistic relationship uh, then uh, between um, Burundi, Rwanda, and Tanzania. I think Tanzania was 
openly criticized for having granted nationality to Rwandese refugees in the first place. And Tanzania's reaction was then, well, if you don't acknowledge that this was an act of humanity, we may have to denationalize these persons and then send them back, which is why I said in my remarks, it's good that Tanzania has turned around and recognized that whatever little local difficulties there might be, the bigger picture uh, is the important one. Is Burundi ready? I think politically it is ready because that's the first, the political wheel. If we saw the problems in Rwanda where the president of Habyarimana, President Habyarimana's government said you really can't return. And of course people then had to use force in order to return. But to open the door and say, yes, these persons can return and we will make the conditions uh, politically and economically that will rehabilitate their return is an important aspect. But just as Tanzania needs support, Burundi also needs support in that regard, perhaps uh, based on, on a regional uh, framework. Armed activities in refugee camps, Tanzania has had ample experience of this uh, in dealing with uh, the intra-hardware uh, in the early 1990s, uh, and it's, it's a government that should be able to deal with this problem at this point in time, given what happened. And again, I personally was involved in some of those issues in looking at how to separate out armed elements. Uh, but the problem since then is that the experience has been forgotten, uh, and B, there's a breach of some of the more elementary principles, such as the safe location of refugee camps from the border, screening upon arrival, uh, and making sure that there are entry points uh, to refugee camps and settlements. And I agree completely that settlements are not, uh, are not the norm uh, in this regard. The question by Marguerite about gender dimensions of return, at least in the context of the, the Great Lakes Protocols, I'm not sure what's happening on the ground in, in practice, but we're alive to the fact that this is an issue that impedes the return of women in particular. So what the protocol on the rights of returning persons does is to oblige states not to discriminate against women generally in matters of land and property, to recognize the capacity of women to own property in their own land, which is a problem because under customary law, women are regarded as perpetual minors. They really can't own their own property at all. Their, their right to own property derives either from their husbands or brothers or uncles, as the case might be. And in cases where uh, retaining widows uh, get back to recognize that the property belongs to them. Uh, so the provisions are very explicit. They relate to not just uh, widows, they also relate to children born out of wedlock. There's a huge problem about the stigma attached. They're not problems of the family. They can't inherit uh, you know, the property of the family as it were. And of course, indigenous groups and minorities too. Um, so those three strands appear fairly forcefully uh, within the system and changing customary um, laws in, in, in that regard. The final point is with regard to John Francois' uh, questions um, which relate, first of all, I think the point Susan made very uh, forcefully and cleverly about the whole issue of regional approaches to peace building. Because when I got involved in this, I had the responsibility to protect fully in my mind. I also had the Helsinki process, which was another model based on a conference and the way in which both processes took a regional dimension. But the most persuasive fact was the finding by the panel that was set up uh, and produced the report in Light of Freedom, which said that in reality there is a regional network of conflicts in a particular region. And if you resolve one, 
then you displace the conflict to another state, which is what has been happening from West Africa to East Africa, and therefore taking a regional dimension which involves all the actors and the states and tying them up to a range of obligations and standards of conduct uh, became the norm uh, in that regard. Insofar as non-state actors are concerned, the regulated peace process obliques does that, that does refer to that in an oblique sense. Uh, first of all, measures against armed groups uh, is an important aspect. There's a forum for private actors um, as part of the conference, and this includes both the good and the bad actors. The good actors <laughs> are either those involved in corporate social responsibility, the bad actors, illegal exploitation of resources, private military companies, mercenaries of the type that Simon Mann fronted, perhaps, um, are all considered in, in that sense. But more explicit, perhaps, is the emerging African Union draft convention on internally displaced persons. That has more explicit provisions on the rules and obligations of non-state actors. Uh, and at the first meeting, the representatives of states raised problems about how, within a framework of state obligations, there could be obligations binding on non-state actors. But then we reminded them that unless those obligations were absent, then states would continuously uh, incur the responsibility for acts of non-state actors. Uh, and on that basis, I think there's a slight tilt uh, in the framework of international law, uh, including non-state actors on the basis of regional African practice. Just a couple of points. I wanted to uh, just highlight um, to Marguerite that how important that protocol on property is as potentially displacing some of the customary provisions, the African customary provisions, because it's much more in accordance with CEDA and, and the, the developing jurisprudence around the world about equality, and so that I think that that provision will be very important. With respect to non-state actors, um, I think this is a really problematic issue, actually. I think when you look at the responsibility to protect as a concept, it certainly seems to be focused on the state rather than the non-state actors. And I'm involved in another process right now working with um, the Kurdish Human Rights Project, and we're talking with the PKK, for example, and, and guerrilla groups and, and their willingness to be bound by international law, particularly international humanitarian law. The PKK, for example, signed a declaration that they would abide by, abide by international humanitarian law. But I think what Chiloka is pointing out is, you know, it is the state's responsibility, in fact, to incorporate the non-state actors into the dialogue, into the process. They have to be involved because if they're contributing to the conflict, and that, I mean, even looking at the example of the United Kingdom and the IRA, look how long that takes for some states to recognize that they actually have to talk with their most bitter enemy and actually bring them to the table. It is a, it's a, it's a very difficult process to, to get going, but absolutely essential. And just finally, on this, this regional um, peacekeeping efforts, um, I think Kofi Annan in larger freedom, again, unfortunately, that seems not to have um, taken hold in terms of the adoption of the responsibility to protect and the peace building commission. There seems to be still this single state model. But again, with the example of the Great Lakes peace process, um, and looking again at the Kurdistan situation and the Kurdish problem, there are several states involved in that process right now. So that there, there, there's a requirement in some of these conflicts to have multi-state or, or regional involvement in peacekeeping and peacemaking. Thank you.
Okay, we have you had a question? James from uh, uh, the RSC in Oxford. Um, it's been said that uh, camps are a last resort. I was wondering why there's still such a, such a prevalence of them or whether a last resort gets arrived to very quickly. Um, uh, and that is an issue looking into this sort of cyclical nature of the responsibility to protect, whether it would actually be a, a better idea to try and, try and have it talk about, talk about camps in, in a, uh, say, the Great Lakes um, Sort of peace process, sort of in a situation like that, to think what better ways can we do um, at not problematizing uh, refugee flows um, as a way of maybe not continuing sort of moving, the, moving conflicts from one place to another um, when, when refugees return. Um, maybe that's sort of a conceptual idea that the camps need to sort of really be actually said they are a last resort. We will not go to them unless absolutely necessary when we've exhausted all other measures rather than, yeah, it's just easy to do camps. We know we're quite good at that. Thank you. Yes? Unemployment is always 45%, never less. 
So we're talking about countries with high unemployment, uh, um, with um, lack of uh, land, uh, lack of housing. Um, and then, not most important of all, let's not forget, is the ethnic factor. You know, um, uh, for instance, if um, Kenya were to naturalize all the Somalis in, in Dadaab, then can you imagine how this would, uh, this would uh, completely, uh, you know, change the, the ethnic balance uh, issue? Um, so, so I think it's a, it's a combination of, of, of the economy, political politics, but uh, also very much the ethnic factor, the ethnic balance. On the um, question of um, was Tanzania really that generous? Um, I, you know, I don't know what the intention of that question was. Uh, yes, it was generous in so far as it's given uh, citizenship to these people, but. But let's not uh, forget, I mean, if these had been uh, troublemakers and insurgents and all that, you know, I doubt very much in Tanzania would have been as generous. But the fact is, these people have been contributing, and as Brian says, they were actually paying taxes from 1985 uh, and actually converted. I don't, I don't want to sound as if it's utopia, but, but I visited myself this region, Ulankulu, near Tabora, and uh, you must, you know, you must admit that it's pretty green. You went on market day, and uh, every sort of produce imaginable in that part of the world was available in the market. So these people have been good agricultural, you know, contributors, and um, and it was probably to Tanzania's probably, you know, probably they did a cost benefit analysis. Maybe it's to 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 their benefit to to keep these people. Uh, but also uh, not to forget that uh, this whole area is, a, is actually a, a high potential area, both in terms of uh, rainfall and the ability to produce, but also a lot of refugees were in the forest areas. The, the, you know, the forest, they were spreading so much that they were moving into the forest areas uh, that could have rich eventually biodiversity, tourism potential and all that. So by doing this way and working together with the, U the UN, the international community, and more orderly move people, you know, the ones who are locally integrated towards areas as Brian showed in that, in that map that they were going to be spread out, they could reclaim the forest areas and I assume that there must be a plan to develop it for biodiversity and for tourism. So <coughs> there is, so let's not pretend there are gains of Tanzanian governments as well for having done what they did. Um, the prevalence of plans last resort. Um, yes, I would say that it's, it's very much a last resort. You know, a lot of times, let's forget, these, uh, the governments of these asylum countries have a say in the matter, and a lot of them don't want to see refugees just walking around the cities or the towns or even the rural areas. They want them confined to a camp situation, and, um, and, and, and really, this, in fact, you know, we're constantly negotiating even to move camps to more humane conditions. And, you know, like, as I said, in the case of, of Yemen, this camp for Somalis is away in the far western region, you know, really in very harsh conditions. But a lot of times, um, you know, we, we are at a weak bargaining end. We are really, because we do need the asylum country to agree for them to remain. So uh, I think it's, it's a constant trade-off. I, I don't think it's, I don't think camps, you know, as I said, is a last resort as far as I'm concerned, but sometimes when things are so bad, in the end, maybe it's not that bad to have the camp because that way at least we can reach all the people we need. We can reach all those families with six or seven children that they could never, especially single women and families, that they would never be able to cater for. 
So so um, so it's a constant trade-off. It's a constant trade-off, and that's what uh, our business is. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll just respond to possibly uh, two or three issues. The generosity issue raised by ICO first of all. I think that although the European states have not entirely resolved the issue of burden sharing, but the Amsterdam Treaty does require them to balance the burden of responsibility. They haven't entirely worked that out. Uh, but more relevant perhaps is the Dublin Convention. Um, with regard to the state responsible for the determination of refugee status. And that, in a sense, for them, uh, does work out. Um, the African states do have within the African Union Convention the issue of, of burden sharing. Um, but if you look at what Tanzania has done, nonetheless, you would say that it is beyond you know, the emergence of burden sharing. Um, there are provisions in the 1951 Convention on Naturalization. So you'd say there is a responsibility based on an obligation to, to naturalize. Nonetheless, the practice of African states is not to naturalize. Often voluntary repatriation and return is the solution rather than granting um, nationality as often happens in Western states where uh, a refugee might graduate from being a refugee to a permanent resident and then nationality um, along the way. Uh, but the African system practice is oriented towards return. So most of them exclude refugees from any notion of citizenship or nationality, period. There's no consideration that after five, ten years, you'd go through the <coughs> Citizenship Act and apply for nationality and asylum. And I think that consideration, the simplification of the processes and procedures, um, lent weight to the conclusion that the Tanzanian government clearly, I think, was generous. And also given the fact that they've been criticized previously um, you know, by some of the neighboring states, I think it was a huge uh, political turnaround. Um, as regards the camps, um, I personally do not like the idea of camps for, for refugees uh, and would treat them as a last resort. Nonetheless, there may be situations where they are necessary. For the physical protection of refugees against armed occasions, uh, I think that happens in, in most cases because of the location. There may be situations where, because of ethnic factors, the local population is actually hostile to a refugee population. Uh, and again, you have to have a system of ensuring physical safety. Uh, but there's an anthropologist who was at the University of Florida called Art Hansen, and he did a study on refugees in camps and spontaneously settled refugees in, in northwestern Zambia. And he said he was disappointed to come to the conclusion that uh, spontaneously self-settled refugees were no better than the refugees in the camps. Um, so the debate amongst social scientists and anthropologists goes on and on. The lawyers can say something about physical protection and necessity of all that, but I think there's a totally different uh, dimension to that from the perspective of uh, the social sciences. As for the European Union Fund, I'm not entirely certain what its benefit is. I haven't looked into that myself, but I'm slightly cynical because of the fact that Tanzania was one of those states that was designated to provide some kind of um, outside Europe offshore uh, processing schemes for asylum seekers, if you like. Uh, and I think the existence of the fund still has something to do with that agenda. Uh, but beyond that, because I don't have the facts, I really can't speak to it. If I may add one interesting uh, 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 
tidbit there um, regarding camp situations. As I said, I was just in Yemen uh, and I visited Al-Karaz camp on the western side where there are about 9,000, 10,000 Somali refugees. And uh, World Program recently conducted a nutritional survey of, of children in the camp. And they found that uh, acute malnutrition was absent, just absent. Uh, but chronic malnutrition uh, was, um, was, um, was actually lower than in the hosting community in the surrounding villages, who were themselves lower than the national average. And you know why? Um, okay, fine, we, uh, World Food Program provides 2,100 kcals per day per person, you know, which is that standard um, within the camp. So, so that takes care of the, the, uh, the populations there. But, but a lot of times, the populations trade what they get, the, the dry foods and the pulses and everything, <coughs> even the cooking oil, with, with the local population. They trade, and as a result, it enters their diets these nutritious foods enter their diets, which obviously the national average don't have access to. So you have a really strange situation of, of uh, in fact, a lot of times, uh, sometimes we're accused of, of having uh, so-called five-star camps, you know, where, where people, uh, <laughs> people can somehow to be doing so much better than people outside. So, you know, that's why I keep saying that it's all a trade-off. I, I don't think it's the black and white answer. It's, it's a constant trade-off, physical protection versus other. Can I see what other questions there are? Yes. Okay. One, two, three, four, five. We'll do those. Yeah. My name's Aaron from Oxford's Refugee Studies Centre. Just um, wondered if you could help me understand the context of the situation a little bit more. In regards to those who came in '72, uh, when there was such a great degree of success in their integration to the degree that they were paying taxes even. Um, why in 93 were these refugees going to be put into camps? Uh, what, was the, what was the impetus, what was the causation of that change when there seemed to be such success and they were actually contributing to the Tanzanian economy? I'm in the Law Department here and also worked with the Crisis States Program for a while. Um, I wanted to, well, first of all, say as an international lawyer how wonderful it is to see something like the Great Lakes Protocols and that whole process has been very exciting and, and innovative and a real different way of approaching international law. Um, so I echo Susan's enthusiasm for <laughs> this document in many ways. But I'm just wondering on the ground how that plays out and if agencies like 
UNHCR, maybe you know, EU involvement in the region, how other actors relate to that, that, that document and the peace process. Or, because one of the problems that often happens is everybody's sort of doing their own thing. And there are all these initiatives that are not coordinated. And so to what extent people are actually linking up with the Great Lakes peace process? Thank you. Right in the very back. I, this won't reach, but you just speak up. from UNICEF UK. I have a question for Judy, and of course it relates uh, to children, uh, specifically uh, on the group called Unaccompanied or Separated Asylum-Seeking Children. Have you had uh, those cases? I gather from Brian's presentation that the biggest movements were in 72 and 93, so I guess those children are now already adults, but there may have been, must have been some more recent arrivals. So if so, then how do you deal with, uh, with the process of seeking durable solutions for them? It is based on the, their best interests. Have you set up a formal procedure for determining what is in the best interest of those children? Thank you.
Especially the one on the company miners. I mean, I, I, I think I have an answer, but I'm, I don't want to venture into exactly what the system is to deal with that. I think on the question of um, the time frame, is it realistic? 2008, I think, you know, um, it's, it's never, you know, the, the time is never right for people to return to, 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 to these countries, as I said that are in the developing world that themselves are grappling with the development problem uh, with, with, and, and everything associated with, with, with being uh, an under, underdeveloped economy. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think the time, first of all, the time can ever be right. Uh, but number two, um, in terms of, uh, in the Burundi case, uh, the, I suppose the good news is that we're working very closely with the UN Integrated Mission I'm sure you all know about BINUP. BINUP stands for, anyway, is a, a UN integrated mission in Burundi, and um, uh, where they cover all aspects of the, you know, of, of, um, of from peacekeeping to, to development issues to even uh, reintegrating issues. So as much as we can work within the framework that BINUP provides, and hopefully that way we can, um, uh, as you suggested, also linked up with all other development initiatives uh, within the world. Um, there was a question about, uh, and, and this also goes with the other question that was raised about the Great Lakes peace process. I probably need to look at it so can answer that better, but there again, uh, not only the BINU, but the uh, Great Lakes, what do you call it? Great Lakes um, Mula Mula. Organization secretary for the Great Lakes is also working all within, you know, within the BINU framework. So um, I'm not saying that uh, that magically then everything falls in place, but but um, everything that can be done to have a focused, uh, concentrated, coordinated uh, kind of um, uh, framework and exercise. I Why are African countries um, so um, so um, unwilling to, to integrate, to locally integrate refugees? Uh, I don't know if it's just African countries. I would say maybe it's even, because I'm from Asia, I can say maybe it's even worse than Asia. Uh, you know, we have big, big problems with refugee populations in, in, in Nepal, for instance, uh, in, in Pakistan, even for same people across the border in, in Afghanistan, same language, same people. You know, as I said, it is, it's a combination of many issues. It's, it's, it's the fact that, that they're poor, that the resources are, are limited. Uh, it's, it's the politics also, that's not denied, that a lot of times politicians, you know, when you have nothing else to offer, you like to play out a, local, a common enemy. So it's very popular a lot of times to be bashing the refugee for, for, a, for a local politician. Uh, even somebody of the same ethnic group, you know, but it's just something to rally around, and I guess that's politics everywhere. But uh, but lastly, also because of the ethnic dimension, uh, a lot of times people don't like to 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 to, to um, you know to mess up too much, mix up too much the ethnic balance that's already fragile as it is by further um, <coughs> by further uh, exacerbating the situation. Um, Resettlement, uh, or rather, we're handpicking. Um, 
that is, um, I don't know, again, Jean-Francois and Brian, they're longer with HCR, so they could probably answer that better, but, uh, but, but um, HCR is aware that certain countries, for instance, would, would let's, let's be very honest, would prefer people of a certain group. Uh, certain countries would prefer Christians versus other religious groups, etc. But uh, all we can do is actually to play the role of honest broker. So I'll be very obvious, you know, I'll be very frank with you in the case of, for instance, Iraqi refugees. Obviously, there's a pressure for us to put forward more and more Christian uh, people forward for resettlement in the West. And our position has always been, uh, you know, we respect what your wishes, what you want, but bear in mind that number one is wrong for us to do that because we are meant to be. Uh, equal for everybody, but number two, that will cause sometimes even more problems, because when you have refugee, refugee situations in places like Syria and Jordan, already tense as it is, and the tension built up as it is, if the word should go out, God forbid, that only Christians, you know, are accepted for resettlement, you can imagine what will happen to, to my staff, they'll all be, I mean, they'll all be beat up, there's no question about it, so if anything, you know, we cannot have that kind of um, a situation, you're constantly trying to, to to deal with this problem. But, but I cannot deny, yes, there are certain groups that are more favored than others in, in situations. Um, and then and then Brian, you'll answer the 93 case now. And I, I don't think there's anything else. This, and the unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors. And the taxes. On the 72 policy versus the 93 policy, I think uh, obviously there's a lot of political and regional issues that go behind the, the thinking of the Tanzanian government. I couldn't speak on their behalf. But I think one thing that comes quite clear to us is that they were obviously trying to avoid a pull factor, that um, they didn't want the 93 situation to spin out of control in a way and that they would have more and more people coming across filling in these settlements that find they were established and they were fairly well contained and self-sufficient. But if you inundated it with, with them with, with more and more and more people, then deforestation would be a bigger problem than it, it was already. Uh, when we were there, there was a lot of press around bushmeat and the fact that refugees were going out, apparently, and hunting down the chimpanzees and other uh, endangered wildlife in the, in the area. And I think all these factors, in a way, contribute towards this sort of change in a policy that you saw in 93. I think what they, saw, what they tried to do in 72 is a one-off um, and, and allow people to settle, but th they never told them that they would be there permanently. There was always in the back of their minds that eventually they would return to Burundi. Um, so I don't think they wanted to entrench that situation any further, and I don't think they wanted to give the impression to any new arrivals that they could establish themselves there as well and, uh, and avoiding this pull factor as it were. That, that's probably a big factor there. Um, on the resettlement question, I, I think a big part of it is um, certainly the capacity of, in this case, the U.S. to process the, the cases that we're submitting to them. I and mean, we see in Iraq, for instance, that they had, I don't remember the number, do you, Judy, that the U.S. had wanted, but they, they also there couldn't meet the quota. Um, 20,000 or? 20, yeah, where we, we met their request to submit that number of cases, but their capacity to process was, was obviously not up to speed. Um, I think you see it here as well. 
And I don't know if it's um, – it is a bit of picking and choosing. That, that is true to some extent. But they also set the bar quite high, uh, which is a problem because it raises expectations amongst refugee populations. We, we do see that. Uh, and we have to be very careful about um, how, we, how we manage that, how we communicate that in the camps. Uh, in the case of the 72 Burundians, there is a high expectation of, for resettlement. I mean, it's a fact. Uh, and it may inhibit some people who want to go back to, to try to wait around and see why not. Let's just wait around and see what happens. And that's quite true in a lot of situations. On taxation, as far as I under, understand it, the, the settlements came under the control of the regional commissioners uh, and the district commissioners. Uh, and when you think of a settlement, you shouldn't just think of it as a village of Burundians. There are also Tanzanians living there. Um, the, the law enforcement extended to these settlements. So the trade, the shops, the transportation, all of that fell into the same sort of taxation controls as, as for local populations. So it, it was very much integrated into the state uh, system for taxation. I don't think it's anything like you see in, in <coughs> Western countries where you're filling out a form every year and submitting your tax bill. It's very much linked to the trade. It's linked to the, sa the sale of items and the transportation, that sort of thing. Thank you. So can I just add one thing on the resettlement? Um, uh, I, I just want to balance the picture a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, though, it's not always, um, you know, sort of um, not, not so benevolent, that the case I mentioned. Uh, increasingly, a lot of times, it's actually very benevolent. In fact, certain countries uh, would, would take, would ask to take um, uh, women who have been, uh, for instance, rape victims, that, you know, for the, 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 the group from Nepal. In fact, that's the first group we, we shipped over to the U.S. were about, was it uh, Brian, uh, eight or nine yeah. uh, uh, um, um, women, rape victims, who, who, uh, whose lives were in danger because their, um, the, the rapists were still at large and were threatening them. So these countries actually wanted these vulnerable groups. So, so there's both sides to it as well. So I don't want to give the impression it's always cynical. It's also sometimes benevolent. <laughs> Thank you, James. Um, one or two responses. First to Jenny's question about what's being done on the ground. Um, and I think that's a huge question because the framework was just agreed last year and formally it enters into force some time this year. So the implementation is, is the next phase. And all the countries are working out their national implementation strategies at this point. But there's also, I think, a saddening aspect from the point of view of the UN, which is that although it's a good policy in terms of rotation of persons, there's no institutional memory. So the people who participated in this process are long gone and you've got completely new people from the UN who don't know where they're starting from, they've not been briefed about what this is all about. So education and... Thank God you remain around. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that education, familiarization with the processes is obviously uh, one of those things that you know, the, the, the conference has to build in in relation to the UN partners. But there's no doubt that the UN partners themselves are very uh, committed uh, to the process as a whole. The second issue is about unaccompanied asylum seekers. And in a sense, in most African refugee situations, the issues are those of physical protection and protection on return. 
there's not an issue on entry or admission as there is in Europe because it's uh, a prima facie group eligibility system. So once children come without doubts, they may lose their, their parents or they may have already been uh, orphans from the time of displacement. Uh, they will be accepted as refugees um, purely by reference to the circumstances of the country of origin. But what then I think begs the question is the system of protection itself by which family members, I think, assume the major responsibility within camps and settlements. I don't think you find much insistence on the best interest of the child principle, which of course ought to, not just from the um, CRC, but also from the African Charter on the Rights and Welfare of the child. And in the Great Lakes, uh, with regard to return at least, there's a system of protection the gap we identified about children uh, who are orphans uh, and even children who, uh, for example, may not be recognized as having attained the age of majority to inherit their diseased parents' property. Uh, and the protocols give them you know, the right to do so, uh, even if they, they are children. So there, there might be some issues there to, to look for. The final comment is on, um, from Saraka, why African systems uh, do not um, often look at situations of naturalization. Um, the balance of ethnic factors, of course, has become more important since the 1990s after democratization. But before then, the whole mentality was based on decolonization, that refugees were a factor of wars of national liberation and decolonization. Uh, and therefore, after these wars would be over, they would be returned. This is why the 1969 Convention is oriented towards return. Uh, it was drafted first uh, in Kampala 1962, then you had the 1964 draft by 1967 when the framework was agreed. Wars of national liberation and decolonization were still the norm. And the thinking in Africa at the level of the African Union, or the OAU then, was that uh, as soon as there was solidarity with regards to refugees because this was a common cause. But as soon as these conflicts would be over, then refugees would enjoy their right to self-determination and go back uh, to their countries uh, of origin. And that mentality hasn't changed. Uh, by 1972, um, Nyerere publicly said that, well, forget decolonization. There's now the persecution of Africans by Africans, and we have got to deal with this. Um, then ethnic factors, of course, became issues, i.e. after independence and decolonization, internal armed conflicts, most of which are about resources, but also take into account ethnic uh, issues became the norm. Um, and because of that, most African states are nervous about uh, conferring nationality on a particular um, ethnic group, which might alter the balance of ethnic composition, i.e. either enlarging a particular group and which may change the, 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 the pattern of voting uh, in a particular country. And, and I think that still is a reality to a very large extent. I, I know we're running out of time. I just have a couple of uh, points that, that, that sparked in me. One from Jenny. Um, I mean, obviously, with, particularly with reference to the UN system, and I have a poor, unfortunate student of mine who's now working at the UN, is this issue of turfism. And um, the, whole idea, the whole idea of the responsibility to protect and the Great Lakes process is that they've got to talk to each other and cooperate, but it remains to be seen. This is changing a culture 
of decades, and it's, it's, I, you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's, that's why when I said in my talk, it remains to be seen whether this can actually happen. But I have faith in Chiloka too, so I'm convinced it will work. <laughs> Second on, on this issue of, of repatriation versus um, going back to your own country, etc., I just want to remind people that at the Second World War, my government... The Minister of Immigration said with respect to Jewish immigration, quotes, none is too many. The fact is that the responsibility to protect talks about all of us having responsibility for refugee crises around the world. And I feel very strongly about this fact that if you actually take responsibility to protect to its logical conclusion, if a country is in such a state that it cannot receive its citizens back, there's an obligation on other countries to do something, to provide funds to provide locations, to provide settlement for those peoples. And um, so have a look at the report. Thanks. I think that's a very good note to try to draw this together. I want to, first of all, thank uh, Judy and Brian at UNHCR for coming and staying in contact with us and keeping us informed about the work that's going on on the ground and, and draw your attention to the fact that UNHCR publications brochures are up here in the front on the right. Um, I think it's been a very important discussion, uh, especially looking at the evolution of the responsibility of the, uh, uh, um, to protect. Um, and I hope that we can continue that dialogue and discussion, the exploration of the implementation of that very controversial principle too, because of course it's never been applied in a universal kind of way to date, and we need to look at how this evolves over time. I think it's been very important to understand the regional forms of governance over the refugee issue that's been uh, discussed and debated today, and the way that's evolving, and to learn the very interesting lessons that have come from Tanzania, and, and, and Tanzania's own particularly um, um, uh, active um, um, intervention and um, assistance and innovations in relationship to refugees and also to discuss the problem of refugees in Burundi at this very strategic moment and very fragile moment for Burundi today. So uh, I thank you all for your very challenging and pertinent questions and debates. I would encourage you to keep your eye on the IHL and activities coming up next term and also tell you that on May 22nd, the Crisis States Research Center is having Ashraf Ghani and Claire Lockwood, uh, who will be speaking in a public lecture to their new book uh, that's summing up lessons, comparative lessons from state reconstruction. Ashraf Ghani is the former finance uh, secretary of the, uh, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the, the talk will be very wide-ranging and very critical on the international community's involvement in these uh, issues. That's May 22nd. So without further ado, thank you very, very much. <laughs>